Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, thanks very much for tuning in. If this is your first episode of the show, I sit down with some people who I, I like and know from my world and we talk about what their personal philosophy is to something. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you already know that. So that's my quick recap. I, I reckon there might be some new listeners today because my guest is somebody who has a very uh, loyal audience of their own. Uh, M. Rassiano. Uh, M. is an incredible uh, all-round talent. Uh, she, you know, has written books. She has sung. She has uh, hosted radio shows. Appeared on television. Done live shows that cross over stand-up and singing. And anyway, she's she's an amazing performer, and she's also someone who uh, really divides people. You know, people have really strong opinions about M. Uh, you know some quite negative and, and mean-spirited and and a lot of people who would walk over hot coals for her and do anything for her and go and see every single thing that she does and consume every single thing that she does. So uh, I imagine that some of those people are tuning into this podcast for the first time. So hello, welcome. My name's Will. Uh, you know all about our next guest, but hopefully you might hear something about her today that you haven't heard before. Uh, it was a great pleasure to have her on the show. She was amazingly open genuine uh you know beautifully combative in the way that she is uh you know she doesn't hold back at any stage on any of the topics that we talk about and uh i just really loved having this conversation with them it was a great pleasure to sit down with her uh the time absolutely flew by as we were talking and i hope you're going to enjoy it as well if there is uh, if this is your first time listening to the podcast then there's heaps of other ones. Uh, please go back and check them out. And, you know, if you like it, rate them on iTunes and or, or your podcast app and share them around. And all that stuff helps because this is just a little podcast. And uh, I have podcast Mike, who does a great job uh, arranging the guests for me. And we have Mike Hal, our producer in the US, who, you know, I send him the, the two feeds that I record at my house. And he uh, edits them together into a podcast that can actually go out into the world. And, of course, the amazing James Fosdyke, who does all the art for the podcast. So uh, all those people get paid uh, to help me put this on. So the way that I pay them uh, is out of a thing. We have a Patreon page. Uh, it's patreon.com slash TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P. And that covers all the podcasts uh, under our little TOFOP group, which is uh, Charlie and my podcast, TOFOP. Uh, my side project, FOFOP. Tra- uh, Charlie's side project, that's awesome. Uh, there is a philosophy, which is this podcast. We have a dumb footy podcast for AFL fans called two guys, one cup. So there's a whole bunch of things there. Uh, you can support any of them, but if you want to support this podcast and help it come out weekly, the best place to subscribe, uh, you know, drop a few bucks is through that Patreon page. And that helps at some stage, perhaps maybe in the future, we'll get a sponsor or something. And then I won't have to beg you to uh, support me on the Patreon page so that I can pay everybody. But at the moment, uh, the reason the show comes out weekly is because of all those wonderful people who do such a great job. And I think they deserve to get paid for doing that great job. All right. That's the proper plug. Hey, here's how you can support me. If you don't want to you know, join up to the Patreon page or anything like that, you can come and see one of my live shows. I'm currently doing the best show that I've ever done. It's called We're Legal. Uh, it's the most personal show that I've ever done. Um, it's I'm enjoying doing it so much, it's made me terrified about what I'll do next. Uh, so I'm just going to keep doing this one for a while. Uh, Canberra is next stop uh, on my tour. So I'll be Canberra doing We're Legal and then uh, Sydney at the Sydney Opera House at the Concert Hall. Uh, both of those shows are selling pretty well. So if you want to come and see me do this show in Canberra or in Sydney and I think Justin Hamilton's gonna 
come along and do support for both of those uh, dates, uh, please come out and see the show and book some tickets now. That'd be really brilliant. Uh, Emma has a book. It's called Try Hard. Uh, she has a radio show. Uh, if you are in Sydney, you can listen to her in the mornings, but also you can download the podcast and listen all over the world. And you can definitely go and check out one of her live shows when she comes near you with them. They are powerhouse performances, uh, an amazing night out. And look, if you're a TV executive who's listening to this podcast, she has a pretty decent pitch for a TV show, I think, that would work as well. So you'll hear that somewhere in the podcast as well. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope uh, that you're enjoying the podcast coming out regularly and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, which has now become the intro to this podcast. Originally, it was just because uh, we had to change it because I forgot to do the podcast for like a year and iTunes took it off. And so the only way I could do it again was rename it. It used to be called Philosophy, and it was with Will Anderson, but now it's Philosophy with Will Anderson. And then I am like, I'm Will Anderson. There's too many sayings of my own name in the intro of this podcast. So let's start. Uh, who are you? I didn't know if I was allowed to laugh out loud. You're allowed to uh, laugh out loud, <laughs> but, you, but you can't say anything until you, you've introduced yourself. That is hard for me. I'm M. Rossiano. Now M. Rossiano. I had to uh, lean in there. You did, and I'm glad you leaned in because yes. these microphones aren't actually that good. And okay. You, you work in a radio studio where you can probably be recorded from any pretty much any part of the studio. No, no. As Ed Cavalier says, our microphones are from North Korea. They're not great. Oh, is that right? Mm, they're directional. They're, it's... <laughs> It's interesting. Sometimes we get on air, sometimes we don't. It's a fun roller coaster. Uh, it's one of those great things about working in the radio industry. One of my favourite things is uh, the ISDN line. Uh, so there's this uh, basically, radio stations have this technology where someone can go into a studio somewhere mm. and then they can be, it seem like they're in a completely different place. I do it quite a lot with mm. our show because. Uh, we take Gruen out of Sydney, so mm. I'll do a couple of days out of Sydney and uh, the other boys are in Melbourne and I'll, you know, we'll pretend that we're in the same studio. Oh, well, we don't. We just tell them that, oh, that I'm do. in Sydney. Mm. And yeah, but some other days, you know, depending on who the guest is or what you're trying to achieve, you know, you might not say. Mm. It's technology that radio stations use every single day. And yet every single day it seems like they have to go to their Harry Potter book and find another spell to, to try to make it work because it no one works. seems to understand the technology. Never. We have to call the text every morning because we use an ICN every day because none of us are ever in the same place. And every day we walk in and there's a problem and we're all like, why can't you just fucking set it once and walk away? But it's just every day they said we can't hear, they can't hear us, we can't hear you. Then hello, there's calls, there's texts coming down with laptops and beards and hats and you're like, what's going on? Are we going to go to air? Well, I, I find it amazing that we live in a world now because often what happens in those studios as well is they'll set up Skype and all these sort of things. So I can actually, when I'm in Sydney, mm. I have a Skype in front of me that shows like uh, Eddie and Luke so I can see them. And then Rosie, who's you know our panel operator and part of our show, mm. she's on a completely different one. So that if I need to signal to her mm -hmm. or like whatever, I can do that. And so that's just a free app that's available on the internet, <laughs> and it seems to work fine. <laughs> Why? That's so true. Do you know what does ISDN stand for? I bandy it around like I know. Do you know? I don't know. Me no, neither. No. But I say it all the time. Have you got an ISDN? Maybe that's why they can't fix it because no one know knows what to look up. <laughs> 
Yes. Hey, uh, M, do you have a philosophy? Let's start there and then let's just talk about a whole bunch of different things. But mm -hmm. do you have a particular philosophy to, you know, work, life, love, anything? Well, the one that I've always instilled in my girls and the one that's instilled in me is be kind and don't take shit from anyone. So that's probably my philosophy to everything. I really like that because I reckon that's a philosophy that has an inbuilt conflict in it. Correct. Be kind and don't take shit from anybody. Yeah. There's times when those two things mm -hmm. uh, will come into conflict. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'll start with a story about myself because I reckon it's easier than asking you to talk about it Thank straight you. away. <laughs> but the, on the morning we're recording this, there was an article on news.com about me uh, telling one of the audience members that grew on the other day to fuck off. And, uh, Amazing, did you? <laughs> well, I did. Great. But not in the way that uh, it was reported in the what? newspaper. What? Are you saying news.com that you have <laughs> twisted the facts? I won't have it. How dare you? Uh but the point is, in that moment, I was genuinely, the audience were a bit shitty and a TV studio audience, and it's, it's very different to a stand-up audience mm. where they've paid their money and they can enjoy it or not enjoy it. Mm. You know, once you've paid your money. I've then got it's, it, mate. It's in the bank. Yeah. But also it's up to you. <laughs> yeah. Like you've paid for it. Yeah. You have the absolute right to yeah. not enjoy yourself. But if you're at a free TV show, unfortunately, you're actually just part of the making of the TV mm. show. And as much as I care about the writing of it and the producing of it and the researching of it and all these things, the audience is another factor in it. So we can get to the night and if the audience isn't giving the panel the energy or attention that they need, mm. then I'm not getting out of my panel what I need from them. Yeah. So it was halfway through the show and that had been the situation and I, I'd cajoled and I'd, you know, tried to plead with the audience and I joked with them and I'd done all the things that I would normally try and then sometimes when worse comes to worse, you've just got to at halftime give them the you know, classic yep. country footy yes. coach spray. You know, yes. you've just got to go, I'm sorry. Take but, a knee. Yeah, but yeah. you're being shit. <laughs> and someone in the audience is like, I thought it was a bit boring. And I said, well, if you think it's boring, fuck off. <laughs> oh, my God. You just lived the dream. And <laughs> It's amazing. So anyway. But you said it in jest. It was in jest, though. It literally was in jest. Yes. Like, it wasn't like I didn't call security. No. I didn't actually make them fuck off. Which you could have. And the, oh, yeah, Let's absolutely. Be real. I could have. Let's be real right I'm now. I'm the host and producer of the show. <laughs> Correct. I could have got told him. <laughs> I wouldn't have needed to tell him to fuck off. I could have done my secret signal <laughs> yeah. to the fuck off police and they just would have fucked them all off. All of a sudden they just wake up in their car like, what happened? Yeah. yeah. Like but no, all I was asking for them was like, uh, be what, better. Don't be yeah, shit. Don't be shit. Yeah. And I'd asked and then I had to tell. And, so anyway, they write about it in the newspaper. Even if it were true, mm. like even if what they had said is true, it mm. wasn't, but even if it were, um, kindness and not taking shit from people mm. uh, right in that moment. Mm -hmm. Because the only reason that I was doing it was as a kindness to my panellists mm -hmm. who were not getting what they needed to do their job properly mm -hmm. and as a kindness to, you know, the people who make the show who had – you know, done all this beautiful work on it that wasn't being supported by, you know, the last cog in that rank. Yeah. So that was my kindness. Yeah. And the bit where someone said it was a bit boring and I said, well, if you think it's boring, go fuck yourself. Good. No, fuck off. Not Good. go fuck yourself. Perfect. Uh, is me not taking shit from other people, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So in that one thing, but the person who I wasn't taking shit from mm. clearly did not that consider that to be not feel your kindness, kindness, right? No. They considered me to be a brat, a pain in the ass, someone mm. who was having a meltdown in the middle mm -hmm. of my show rather mm. than somebody who was trying to, uh, you know, do a kindness for my guests and my show and honour all those sort of things. Mm. So I've said my one just because I know <laughs> that this is an area where, you know, when we jump in with you, if we want to jump in the deep end on this, 
Because I think I have seen both of those things. And I think I've seen or heard, you mm. know, sometimes mm. uh, about the people who you don't take shit from not taking that in a way that, you yeah. know, feels like kindness. How how do those two ideas sit by side with each other? And how does the not taking shit from people sit with the be kind thing? It doesn't, which is I think why I come up against so much trouble. I'm a walking contradiction and I'm aware of that. Um so I'm kind to a point and then I think, I guess my dad doesn't have a middle ground. There's no crescendo. He's Italian. And you go from, it was just as a kid, you went from everything's fine to he's just screaming, throwing things at you. And I'm the same a bit, like I'm kind. And then if I get to a point where I feel like I'm being taken advantage of, I just turn and like something just goes in my eyes and then I become a different person. So I'm not very good at crescendoing my moods. So you'll be talking to me, fine, fine, fine. And then just something will click in me and then I'll go. But I think I do, I know that there is a perception about me and I'm hyper aware of it. And I think I'm in a self-fulfilling prophecy with that idea of me is that I'm difficult or that I'm a diva or, or I'm, I'm hard to work with or I'm just hard work in general. And I'm, I've always been hyper aware of that narrative around me. So I think then I end up creating that by trying to control it. So I will go into a situation initially just kind, just listening to everyone, but then I'm pretty impatient and I'm um, a perfectionist and I'm a little bit nutty and then when someone I feel like is getting in my way or is slowing me down or isn't listening, then I just fucking turn and I'm impatient and I'm mean and I'm a bitch and I'm, I'm not a team player. Like that's just – I'm just not a team player. I'm, a sh- I'm shit in a team. Um, I think I'm a good leader but I'm not very good at listening to other people's opinions if they're different to mine. That's something I've had to develop as I've gotten older. But um, I don't know. I, I do honestly, if people could see inside my heart and soul when I walk into situations, they would see that I'm, I'm not a shit person. I, I think I'm a good human. I mean, I'm anxiety ridden. I lay awake at night going through the day of all the times I was horrible and feel awful and then either send like a late night guilt text or email the next day. Like, I'm so sorry. I know I was out of line. So, here's, okay, here's where I'd like to start with that because there's a whole bunch of stuff there that I'd love to talk about. <laughs> sure. Um, and I, find I didn't really... think that's where we would go, but we should. No, no, me neither. <laughs> like, actually, to be honest, I actually thought it was probably the place that we wouldn't go. Yeah, I'm like, happy to go there. Yeah, but I was. But when I was thinking about what we would do today, and this is the nice thing about this often, is that it goes completely yep. not where I would have thought at all. Yeah. Um, it was kind of the thing that I almost wanted to avoid. <laughs> because only in the way that I didn't want to you know, invite you here and make you feel uncomfortable yeah. about that sort of topic um but it, it, luckily it's kind of landed on a day where i find myself in a very similar sort of scenario <laughs> so it feels to me like you know this is a sympathetic or empathetic conversation sure. rather than you know i hope um i want to start with the bit about the difference between who you are inside mm. versus what the world sometimes sees. so before we get to the shit where sometimes it goes wrong or people think yes. different things and also, I think that some of that is obviously just perceptive. You know, like, yeah. I mean, of course, these things are often we project what people think about us, the worst things. Absolutely. But before we get all, to all that bullshit, sure. tell me about who you actually are. Like, tell me about who you think that you are inside and, and you know, what those values are and yeah. what you think makes up you. I'm a very loyal person. I value loyalty among, like that's the highest attribute for me. All my friends I've had since I was 11 or 12, I'm not very good at taking on new people. Um, but I'm super, I've got a lot of energy, which has got me in trouble and also worked well for me. I'm kind usually, 
I'm generous with the people around me. Um, and I, 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 I'm very well-meaning and, but I think I don't, yeah, I, I find it hard to concentrate on things and I'm all over the place and I have 10 thoughts at once and, and I, I know I come, I'm, I'm aware of overwhelming people. So I've spent my life um, adjusting myself and, and making myself smaller and quieter. So when I discovered stand-up at the age of 34, it was just this, like, I can be myself on stage and I can be as big as I want and as loud as I want and I can wear sequins and feathers and, and people... Have a band and put on a, a show. Have a band and a penis and... And we'll explain that later. And I um. Oh, no, I'd rather keep it. A okay, great, ambiguous. Either that, or it'll be like the crying game. We just reveal <laughs> it right at the end. I love it. <laughs> um, it was just a. That's the first time I ever felt like who I was was okay. I, I've. So I guess I'm someone who didn't really know who she was until very recently. So my whole life has been about bending and contorting in ways to to please people. So, who am I? I'm 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 a loyal, erratic, emotional perfectionist and and i think you know i try to be a good person i really do uh so you say about the idea of being able to be all that you are Mm -hmm. you know and like i know that you were on one of the singing shows australian Australian idol Idol. and you know that's one aspect of what you do you Mm. are a a really fantastic singer and performer but it clearly yeah wasn't all of what you are in the same way as if you were going to be defined as a stand-up comedian that would be limiting you know the full Mm. you know experience of what it is that you do um being big and being loud and being ambitious in that way Mm. i think traditionally this is probably not an unfair thing to say has been something that has been encouraged in men and has not necessarily been encouraged in the same way as women am Mm. i right in saying that do you think you're Absolutely spot on, especially when I went into commercial radio after Idol. We, we sat down in a meeting and they put our roles in, on butcher's paper and I wasn't allowed to talk about sport and I, wasn't, I was told I was too shouty and I, and I had to not be too opinionated. And that was not said to my male. My male counterpart was never told he was too opinionated. That just didn't come out of my program director's mouth. And from that moment walking into the entertainment industry, I was told to, to duck my head. And, and uh, you know, who you are, it needs, to be, it needs to be smaller. We need less. I even changed my name. I went from Emilia Rossiano to Ethnic to M. I'm M because of commercial radio. Is that right? I was Emilia on Idol. I am Emilia. My, that is my name. But even my, my husband, well, he calls me Emmy, but my friends now call me M because of my stage name is M. So, yeah, I, from the get-go getting into this industry, I was way too big for anything for telly. I was allowed on the project like 30 seconds at a time for the Metro Whip Around. I can't get on the TV here. They will not have me on. Like Dave Hughes is the first guy, the first comedian, the first person with a TV show to invite me on and, and I was there as an equal. And like I cried when I got the invite. Same with you when you asked me to come on. I felt like I got asked to sit at the cool kids table at, at lunch because – I've just been ignored and, and or discounted or, or pat on the head or she's a cabaret, she's, she's, and I've always felt like I wasn't good enough or I wasn't going to be invited in and I became obsessed with getting all your approval, not yours because you've always been very supportive, but the cool, the comedians, you know, the guys I mean, I'm not going to name them. Oh, I, I mean, look, I think we all have some version of that in our heads. You and I don't, cannot. You oh, are no, the no, top absolutely. of the chain. But it doesn't matter. Really? It doesn't matter. Never goes away. Just of course not. I want the respect not. of my peers, Will, and I don't feel like I have it. You'll just invite something else in. You'll be like, <laughs> oh, I'm too big. They hate me because I'm doing too well. Like, well. It doesn't matter. There's, there's some reason you imagine your colleagues hate you at all I stages. Uh, but here's, okay, so in that though, firstly, I want to just say Husey uh, 
one of the great things that I love about Husey. This 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 podcast sometimes becomes a I love Husey podcast. I love Husey. Because people, <laughs> I think there are some people who misunderstand some of the best things about Husey. Mm. And one of them that he would never blow his own horn about and I bet no one's ever thought about is how comfortable he is mm-hmm. working around strong, opinionated women. That's incredible. Like he loves it. I mean, yeah. to have worked with Kate Langbrook for that long and not in a, you know, using like Husey and you know, someone else, but mm. literally in a partnership, you mm. know, with someone that strong willed and that strong minded for that long. And, but also I, I used to see it on Glasshouse all the time. You know, it wasn't the Husey and Will show and Corinne had to sit in the corner and giggle. Mm. You know, he was very much a guy who was always loved working around women yeah. who were smart and strong and all those things. So it doesn't surprise me in any way. So <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, do my regular shout out. To I love that. He's, he's got, he, I filled in for Kate last week and like, she's never off, right. but she, she had to, she was really unwell and he called me. And I'm like, of course I'll do it. And I was honored. And he's so, and then he went on Tommy Little's show and Tommy Little said, oh, how are you going to go? Two alpha personalities working together. And then he's like, I work with Kate Langbrook. M's going to be you ever met fine. Kate Langbrook? <laughs> but I think, you know, that, that you're right. He champions me and look, in, admittedly, he didn't really know who I was until this year and he started coming yeah. on the show and plugging his show. And then he rang Ed Cavan and he was like, she's great. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but he's been, he's, he's been incredible. But so have you and so is Charlie Pickering and so is Pete Hellier. And I found the guys, the bigger guys, you, you've always been super kind to me and not intimidated or counted me out or because I sing or have a band or whatever. I've found the biggest guys, you guys, have the less egos about working with me and I, and I love it. It's good. Uh, so when you start doing stand-up mm-hmm. and you start to go, this can be, you know, all of me. Yeah. What did that sort of moment in your life feel like? I just like, you know, obviously I love the idea of, you know, someone getting into stand-up at mm-hmm. that point and what they felt stand-up brought to their life. You know, I just, you know, in yeah. general. So what was it? for you at that time i remember the first time i got up on stage where was it the butterfly club in south melbourne okay nice there was 10 people in the audience i had backing dancers um (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say normally you'd have 10 people on stage now but pretty much i do now um but i just i always i've always had the other my other philosophy is you got to start as you mean to to go ahead so I, i just i had a costume i had backing dancers i had music i had the whole bit and um, I remember doing my opening bit and singing the first song and I remember feeling like iron had dropped off my rib cage. Like it was just this, I took a big breath and it was like the first time I breathed it, clearly and wholly my whole professional life because I'd said in 10 minutes of singing it and stand up, I'd said everything I would never, I would have been fired on radio for saying and people laughed and loved it and I didn't edit myself or, or lessen myself in any way. And it was that moment I realised that, oh, I could find my own audience who think I'm okay. And Because I've up to that point believed that I was a shit human who was too big for everyone. So that, for me, stand-up gave me freedom. It's just incredible freedom and permission to be exactly who I am. So at 34, I went about figuring out who that was. I mean, that's really exciting. But also you touched on something that I think is you know, one of the great secrets of what it is that you've done is that you have actually got just your own audience. Yeah. I bet there'd be a whole bunch of people who come and see you mm. who don't go and see no. other stand-up or Mm-mm. aren't going to see someone, you know, like they. what you do is what they like. Mm-hmm. I mean, that in and of itself is a, a very wonderful thing. When mm. did you first start to notice that that was happening? <laughs> um, 
I think it kind of started with I was doing a lot of stuff online and I was building my Facebook community and I just started realizing And how? How were you doing that? Like what was I was posting every day just stuff that I was lacking seeing from like this was the, the around the time I was starting out was the rise of the mummy blogger and and it was all perfect lives, perfect children, white linen, blah blah right. blah. So I decided just to go the opposite way and just talk about and now it's at nauseam and everyone's doing it but real life parenting and real life mumming and wifing and so I was just telling the truth which I'd never done on air. I'd always, you know, just because I just wanted to control everyone's perception of me and keep my job. And the minute I stopped lying and the minute I started writing truth, I had less to remember and it was easy material because it had happened. So that was when I started getting a lot of, you know, people kind of feeling me too and that horrible word, relatability. But I was, I was relating to women having the same experience. But actually being relatable as opposed to... making up relatable. Making up relatable (laughs) things to sound relatable. Yeah, like, you know, some days I was like, oh, today I'm wearing bathers as undies because I haven't done the washing. And and it was just a shit like that, which I still do now even. Um, But I don't know. And then people started sharing it and I just kept getting more and more fans come in. And then my Facebook page went to like 100,000 people in three months. I went from nothing. It just shot up. Uh And then... um, but still, I mean, it took a long time to build a stand-up audience. I did comedy festival for five years in, in 30, 40 seaters. And you actually sold out one of my runs by mentioning me on stage. Um, someone must have told you about my show and you were re- you always recommend up and coming. On, I try to at the end, like you recommend do. a few people. But I feel like my power is diminishing. <laughs> <laughs> well, used, it worked for I, me. Yeah, I used, to be, I used to be able to give someone a mention and sell out their show. So I feel like these days I'm not quite... <laughs> Well, I tell you, my cousin was in the audience with my auntie. My whole family were in the audience. Uh-huh. You picked the best night. And I got this excited call, Will Anderson just mentioned you on stage. And I'm like, oh, great. And then the next day, like I was only in, I was in under the stairwell at the forum. It was yeah. like, it was a supply cupboard. And it's, I sold out eight shows. And it was just like, holy shit. Um, but I think I put on fucking good shows. Like people come back for a reason and right. they tell their friends, and I sold the Opera House out in 20 minutes this year. Best advertisement for your show is your previous show. I've <laughs> yeah, always, I've always exactly. said that. I say it every year at the Comedy Festival. Yep. The major reason that most of these people come back yeah. is that they like last year. I agree. And I, and I have people come every year and they bring a friend. Like there, most women have seen seven of my shows. Like they come, they start with me in the tiny rooms and then they, they come with me and they feel like their mates having a win. Right. So I, I want to get these people in and keep them in my community and any win I have, you guys are having the win too. So yeah, I, I, I put on fucking good shows, ridiculously large shows in tiny little venues. I didn't make any money. I lost a lot of money. I was living with my parents. My husband had left me. We're back together now. Spoiler alert. And, um, you know, I, I was like on my bare bones. I was borrowing money for dad for petrol to drive into the city. Sometimes I got a train in a leotard. My kids were in the back because I didn't want to look after them. And I'll go on stage and just do, just talk about my life. And it, and it worked. And then people just come back every year and every year it gets more ridiculous. And I love it. The I, audience must teach you something about, I mean, talk about complete opposite of, you know, we started with that idea of that, you know, some people who might not know you yeah. might have some opinions about you. These are people who, you know, have got to know you over yes. watching these shows. And so when you look at them, uh, you're probably getting a bit more of an accurate reflection Mm. of what it is that you're putting out, right? Mm. So what have they told you about what it is that you're doing that they relate to, that they like? What, you know, what are the, when they say, hey, here's what I love about you and your shows, what, what is that generally that they're saying? I think there's always mentions, like when you look at the reviews of my shows, um, 
there's always the mention of uh, uh, laughter and tears. Like I, there's always a bit of a roller coaster in my shows, always. So the shiny eyes, you know, they walk out and, and they've been laughing and crying and crying just for crying purposes. But um, I always get real um, and hilarious. They're the two things that always come through, that, that you're a real person. But they also love that I'm up there in, you know, nine-inch heels and a sparkly leotard and a cape and feathers and backing dancers in a band. Yeah. So well, I'm, there's, there's... I'm them just turned up a bit, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. They go, oh, you're so relatable. I'm the least relatable human on the face of the planet when I'm on that. I'm riding a three-meter inflated cock. Like, that's not relatable. But in their eyes, it is. And that's what I, I love doing. It's just bringing a little bit of the ridiculous to shitty stuff that happens and making everyone feel a bit lighter. I think my job as, as a storyteller and a comic is to take awful, awful things and, and put some light in the dark area and just shine a big, bright light in there. And that's what I've done every show. I've tried to take a topic that's hard and... And shine a light on there and find the humor. Okay, so firstly, I think that it is very relatable because, it, like you said, it's just a, it is a version just of living what, my best life, Will. But you also, you're just like you know, you're the seven year old girl putting on a show for everyone at Christmas, oh, mate, but just yes. grown up with a budget. That's you know exactly what it is. I used to like my dolls had their eyes sewn open when I was nine, and I used to put on these inappropriate <laughs> dance concerts for my dad. Like I'd just be there in like a g string pulled right up over some leopard print leggings, and I'd be dancing to Black Velvet by Lana Miles, just like don't blink, Dad, and I'd be like gyrating, and my poor father would sit there, and I said, and then, this is just. And now he sits on stage. I make my dad sit on the fucking stage playing guitar. And I'm like, Dad, are you watching? Like, it is. But you're spot on. But he is, the poor fucker is now next to me in front of 5,000 people while I dance in a G-string leotard inappropriately in front of him. So So, uh, there's that. But there's also the idea of, you know, cutting your wrists and seeing your audience, letting your audience see you bleed. Now, that can be... Obviously, a very cathartic and wonderful thing for the audience. Yes. But there's also you, the person who's not that person up there doing it for them every night and who's sharing these things. And through the very act of sharing them with an audience, they go from being 100% your story to being something that is also a story for other people. Mm. Uh, you have to do that kind of daily on the radio to mm. yeah, small to very large extents. Mm. Uh Tell me about that process. Tell me about, you know, what you keep for yourself, what you share, how you decide those things, you know, mm. how sharing something changes it, you know, that, that, that's what I want to talk about. Um, well, I mean, the first time I kind of did this in a, in a really hectic way was Divorce the Musical and the day my husband moved out, I did that show in my wedding dress. Like it was, I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. But it was just Dad and I in a small room at Trades Hall and Scott moved out and I just had to start I started writing the day he took his stuff and I just wrote everything I was feeling, you know, I was worried he was going to meet a blonde woman with big tits the moment he walked down the street and then, she, and then my kids were going to call her mum and they were going to hate me and I was going to get fat and I was going to end up getting dying and the cats would eat my eyes out. And I, and I, and I was writing, cause these are the things women think, you know, and I've got to get thin and hot and I can't afford a boob job and I'm never going to meet anyone. I'm going to, so I just started writing all that down, assuming if I'm feeling these things, other people must be feeling these things. So I did that show and Scott came and saw that show while we were separate and that was... Did you make him pay for a ticket? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I do a lot of gear about crying and masturbating to Adele's album. Like there's a lot of talk about that. And my dad and husband are both in the room in like a 20-seater. Like I could clearly see the whites of his eyes, you know. And it was just <laughs> so fucked. But that 
that one was okay. And then I talked about in the next show, I talked about my daughter going through puberty. But the big one is the one I just did and um, Evil Queen. And, and, I, and I really, I spoke about the, my baby dying and my son, I lost him at 14 weeks last year. And um, I was just destitute. I've never been sadder. And I thought I knew sad. It's just a different, it's just a different level. And I, Andrew Denton had found out about another amazing, incredible comic writer. Everyone knows him who supports me and is one of my biggest champions. And he emailed me and he emailed me this beautiful poem and he said to me, one day you'll do stand-up about this. And I just, I wrote him back and I said, I, I, I can't imagine ever being funny again or irreverent or ever. Like I'm just going to wear head-to-toe black. I'm basically going to dress like you, Will, and just yeah, get I'm, around and I'm in mourning. spout poetry. <laughs> <laughs> like, because, it, because Andrew Denton also sent me a letter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But he um he got me out of bed that day. It was huge. And um and I started writing. And I wrote about how, you know, at two AM I found myself googling what do you bury your fetus in and you know and then the jokes started coming. They they said you need a vessel to bring your child home and your, your baby in. And I'm like, to, to Tupperware, do a fetus range. And, mm. and like, even though I was fucked, I still was just going to Bunnings and asking, getting the plant and, and um, carrying him in the container home. And it was so dark, but in a weird way, funny. Like, and I just realized one in four women have this experience, but I didn't know anyone. And then after this happened to me, friends of mine had admitted oh, I had a miscarriage. I'm like, why didn't we talk about it? And I realized there was this whole online community of women who were going through the same process, but none of their friends knew. So I thought, fuck, I have to do a show. I have to actually get in a room with thousands of women and let them know that it's okay to feel completely torn apart and other women have gone through it and it's okay to laugh and and we, we can find some light in this together. So this show that I've just finished nearly ended me. Like I would come off stage and cry for, for an hour. Every show I cried, I had to put three or four weeks between the shows to to get myself up emotionally for it it's a two-hour show it was eight songs um and I can see people in the audience sobbing which was really hard but also ultimately kept me strong because it made me realize that I was making a difference and then I would get I got thousands of people emailing me and leaving feedback on Facebook you can see it on my Facebook page just women this happened to me thank you for doing this now I can talk about it now I can grieve da 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 so in the end, I'm glad it became their story because it took a little bit of the isolation and sting out of my pain because I realised, mate, you're not the only person to have had a heartbreak and there's all these women and it made me feel less introspective and focused on my shit, which is always good for me. So I think that a couple of things you're saying there are really interesting to me, which is the one in four, which I've heard a few times before and uh, you know, some of our friends uh, went through it recently and... Uh, you know, you see how devastated they are because to them it isn't a statistic and it isn't like despite the fact that, you know, like you said, 14 weeks is mm. still, you know, but it happens a lot mm. and no one talks about it. Mm. So when you go through it, you feel like you're the only person it's ever happened to. You feel like you did something to contribute to it or mm. that you know, it was because you were doing this or you were doing that or mm-hmm. because you did this. It's all your fault because mm-hmm. no one's ever just saying, like if, if one in four anything happens that's that's a pretty normal thing to happen common like one in four yeah right but we're not prepared for it and we can't talk about it because no one talks about it but when you when you find out you're pregnant that they don't tell you that the doctor no one says to you hey don't get attached because the baby is a one in four chance the baby will die 
And no one actually prepares you for that. Everyone goes into it because it's a baby and it's nice. This is going to be great. Yeah. You're going to get fat. It's going to be cool. You're going to have a newborn. Your life's going to... Yeah. Oh, by the way, there's a quarter chance that your heart will get ripped out and stomped on on the floor. You probably should mention <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they don't. And I and I felt like, far out. I need. I, I just had this overwhelming need to just smash this open and, and give everyone permission to talk about it. And, and um, yeah, I, I'm glad I did it, but I, I never want to perform that show ever again. So I love, I, I love that you did do it, and I think it's a really fantastic thing to do. Um, Tell me about the process of thinking about how you talk about it. Because, you know, you talk about that idea of people in the audience crying. Mm. You know, around the you know the idea of whether people should be able to make rape jokes or whatever, you know, when that gets debated in comedy every now and again, mm. you know, one of the things that's often said is like, just be conscious of the fact that statistically there's probably somebody in the room who's been through that. Mm. And is your joke going to make them feel terrible or is your joke going to, yeah. you know, give them some comfort or yeah. give them some sort of sense of like, Oh, thank God someone's finally saying that because yeah. that's, you know, the thing I've gone through. So when you're approaching a topic like this, you you are laden with, mm -hmm. you know, responsibility because, as you know, if it's one in four and um, like a lot of your audience is female, yep. then statistically there's just going to be some people in the room who've yep. been through the thing that you're talking about. So when you sit down to imagine how you'll take that to stage in front of people, how, how does that thought process work? I write bravely. So, and, and I also only ever do jokes or write material about my experience. I will never generalize that experience. And I think maybe that's how other people get into to, to troubles when they generalize horrible things or life-changing experiences. So I only ever write it from first person and it's usually through a story, through something I've done or that I've experienced so that the only person who could possibly be offended in the room is me. And that's always held me in good stead when I'm on stage talking about, and, I, and I've made a career out of talking about really tricky, sticky subjects just through my eyes. And that way a lot of people in the crowd will take some stuff from it and go, oh yeah, that happened to me. I'm not a weirdo. Or they'll go, Jesus, I'm really glad that that's not my life and feel better anyway. So um, I, w I wasn't, you know what? Honestly, I, I never thought about it like that, that some people might get upset. I, I never actually wrote with any fear. I just wrote out everything that just came out so simply. I mean, I just I just told the truth. I told the story of finding out I was pregnant while I was on air. Harley and Breen and I were on air and my period was late and we sent one of the roadrunners down to get a test because there was no way I was pregnant because my kids are 16 and 11. And um, I did it in an ad break and I was holding it when we went live to air and it binged up pregnant and Harley was the first person to see it. And like what a fucking story. So I tell that bit on air and I talk about telling my husband and I was so nervous that I cleaned the house and made the kids put on their good clothes and cooked dinner to reassure him that I was capable of having another child. So I, I do living on a prayer and I just change the words. Then I tell the story of getting called to say my test results were bad. Then I tell the story of finding out the baby had gone and then I tell the story of burying the baby and it's just things that actually happened. So no one can yell at me for that or, or be offended by that because – it's the truth. Um, but you don't want to do it again. No. Nah. Because it's, it's done. You're done telling that part of it. Or is it about there's amount of times that often what I think we sometimes, you know, with stuff like this is like there's an, only a limited amount of times you can be in the truth of yep. that moment before you're just 
replicating the truth and emotion of that moment for show business purposes. Yeah. And that's what I do. I, I'm balls to the wall as a red light performer. Like I'm in the moment. And the reason I love stand up as well is that I'm, it's very rare that I'm present, that I'm completely inside a moment, that I'm not skipping 10 thoughts ahead or trying to control everything. So um, every time I perform that, I felt like I was reliving the moment I found out from the nurse that he had died, that the burying him in the plant, the, all those emotions I, I sit back inside of. Every time I tell the stories, I don't ever phone it in on stage. I've never phoned it in in my life. So I just got to a point, we wrapped up in Perth uh, two weeks ago and I was done. I, I come off the show and I was just, I was done. So I'm done and I'm crying in your podcast. Yeah, I was done. So I'm glad I did it, but fuck, it nearly killed me. <laughs> what do you want to do next? <laughs> you Something know? light and right. fun. And no, I've already started planning the next show, as I'm sure you have. Um, I know I have to get arrested again. <laughs> this this <laughs> one's is so impressive. This one's been my best show for. Like, I had a dead baby. You got it. Yeah. You got arrested, guys. We really need to calm down. I mean, next year's going to be a nightmare if we want to follow these shows. <laughs> <I know. laughs> what the hell? What am I going to do? I know. I don't um, know. I, I don't know. I mean, I know I want to do something fun and I've got the title Blood, Sweat and Sequins. So um, I think it's just going to be about what I've been talking to you about. I've really been feeling this this desire to talk about how um, I've always been patted on the head by, you know, 40-year-old men, white guys telling me how to be a relatable woman. And I'm really tired of it. I'm really tired of coming up against dudes who look at me as a, as a woman and a I did hard chat a couple a uh, couple weeks ago with Gleason, and he's someone who's been horrible to me for a decade. Like I don't exist. He flat out ignored me for two hours on a flight, and I got the call to come in, and I was like, "Are you sure?" That just knows. for the record, I've been friends with Tom. For I know. About, I, this I've been this is a happy ending. No, no, no. I know, <laughs> but I just mean I was about to say something that'll yeah. be supportive of you. Yeah, oh, like, I've been friends with Tom for fifteen years, and I love Tom, and I'm too scared to go on hard chat. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm scared about what he'll say about oh me. My God. Well, like, let alone you know yeah. I, you going into that scenario. So I just brutal. wanted to say oh, that good, I'm literally. You. you should do The it, minute I saw the fact that you were going to do it, I was like, that is. Regardless of any of that other stuff, I was like, this is fucking brave because he is going to ask us some awkward and uncomfortable he questions. He did, but nothing I haven't. It's funny. I'm bulletproof with that stuff. I. I, all the worst things anyone, you or anyone listening has thought about me, I have done that and then a thousand miles past. Like, don't worry, guys. Like, I've thought the bad things. And I, I said... Yeah, but we all have. Yeah, I know, but people... Like, so why do you... Like, I mean, I don't think this is even an unfair thing to say and I, I don't think that, you know, Ed would find this disrespectful. Like, Ed, you know... Ed, you know, probably does cop some of what you cop as well. Ed, Eddie Maguire, who I work with, but... If he were you, mm. he would be copying so much more for you know the way that you know yeah. what much of what has been his success and celebrated it in the way that he goes about his things mm. are the exact same things that you have not been celebrated about or got mm. a bad reputation about. Mm. And I don't say that as a value judgment against either of you, no, only to fine. point out the discrepancy yeah. between those things. It's yeah. real. It exists. Yeah. It is in. Uh, so is it changing? No. Nah. Really? No. Nah. You don't think so at all? No. Oh, look at the telly. Who's on the telly? I mean, seriously, like, look at the newsreaders. Uh -huh. Look at the discrepancy between the male and the female newsreader on your telly. Look tell at, me, tell me at, what you see. Look at today. Look at Georgie and Carl. Like, I think 
So when you, so when you look at the... Be, yeah, go on, you know, I, I think women are expected to be pretty and, and polite and, and know their place. And, and I still think that is the attitude. And, and I think only in commercial. Like you look on Netflix, like fuck yes. You know, and you look at people like Chelsea, Chelsea Lately and, and all those, like there is a place for me now. I just have to find it and it's online. And that's how I got my stand-up career and that's how I got a radio job because I did a podcast. I've had to go out and find people to prove to executives I have an audience. I have a big audience. And you know what? My audience is 15 to 50-year-old women and gay guys and lesbians. What a fucking audience. Like, Perfect. Do you know what I mean? Like, they make all the decisions. But I just, I still think there's this, like, I got told not to talk about sport and that wasn't even 10 years ago. There's still this perception around women that it's like, it's like they're afraid that we're rising up, you know? Like, I I get frustrated and, and I know well, Michelle I mean, Laurie. We, we are afraid that you're right. <laughs> we are. Because, you know, those of us who are aware of how talented all those women are, <laughs> very scared for our jobs. No, but you look at panel shows and this is no disrespect to any actress or presenter, but there's always a really well-established male comic and then a, a pretty female sidekick who's not a stand-up. He's yeah. not someone out there slogging it in clubs or doing shows because, God, we can't have two super funny people. That's not okay. And... I don't know, like maybe it's just sour grapes because no one wants me on their show except Husey. But No, I think, I, I mean, I legitimately can understand it. I saw what Michelle, who's done this podcast as well and who is a lifelong friend of I mine. I love Michelle. Um, and I, you know, agree that she's, you know, not got those opportunities when, you know, someone like her or her mm. should have got those opportunities mm. when they've been given to someone who, you know, like you said, yeah, this show needs a male comedian, but we'll do with a funny enough girl. Yeah, right. funny enough. And there's been plenty of that in this mm. industry that you could look at over the years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the thing that I was interesting about what you mentioned, because the thing that I talk about a lot is when I was 14, 13, 14, my favourite show on TV was The Big Gig. Mm. And it was hosted by Wendy Harmer. Mm-hmm. And Wendy Harmer uh, is, yeah, was the funniest person I'd ever best. seen on television. <laughs> Uh, Wendy Harmer mm. is a person who is not, you know, a newsreader or Today Show host, you know, version of what an attractive no. woman is. Yep. Or like, you know, this, she's smart. She has opinions. Yep. She's, you know, fierce. She's all those things, right? Yeah. She had a hair lip. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, it feels to me like we've gone backwards. backwards. We have. You're right. You know why we've gone backwards? Because of fucking Twitter. Like... Now, now anyone with a with an internet connection gets to have a valid opinion. Like they they get they get rep- people report on tweets about shows and then they can a show because of what people have written on Twitter. And I'm like, get fucked. Seriously, do not feel if you're a journalist listening now. And I'm sure the Daily Mail listening and you've got five articles, you assholes. Oh um, yeah, I didn't ever thought about the fact. Oh that mate, I, you'll have every. I've got you on, and I can get a. On there'll the be Daily twenty stories Mail. off this. There'll be oh, twenty nice. stories. Let's let's. Hey break. Daily Mail, you're a bunch of cunts. Um, <laughs> Print that in full. <laughs> we that know the you headline. love putting the c word into. <laughs> Make that your the headline, <laughs> assholes. <laughs> I hope that it says you're a bunch of cunts and then underneath in brackets, make that the headline arseholes. I hate you. Yeah, the day I filled in for Kate Langbrook, yeah. the next day headline, Today FM announces M. Rossiano replacing Kate Langbrook. I fucking filled in. That's destabilising. When Pete Hellier fills in for Sam Pang, they don't say, oh, Pete Hellier is replacing Sam Pang. He's just filling in. I'm like, guys, I'm just filling in. Don't be, don't create shit between Kate and I that doesn't exist. That's a very good point. I mean, Hamish Blake filled in for Mick Malloy on their show, and they didn't. I didn't see was any he articles the about. Job? Was he taking your job? No, he wasn't no. taking Mick's job, was he? But no, I just um, 
Yeah, I I think Twitter, you know, media execs are looking at, you know, 10 negative tweets about a show and they're, ah, the show's a failure. That's why we're going backwards. They're trying to second guess. They're trying to keep everyone in in the mediocre bands so not to be offensive. But, you know, so we just got to keep everything polite so no one can write anything mean or negative and so the show will continue on. So no one's pushing anything far. That's why television's dead because Netflix is fearless because you get to choose if you want to be offended or not. You can put out whatever. That's why podcasts will take over radio. Because people fucking choose. They can't write you in a letter and say, you offended me. Like, get fucked. You chose to download this podcast. That's on you. Well, free-to-air TV is now, um, like, the place for people who don't know how to use Netflix. <laughs> and, and the shows that are on free-to-air TV yeah. reflect that. You Your know, good, here's babe. a show about cooking and here's a show. Well, I think the ABC could argue that it still it might be a separate thing. But you'd also look at a fair percentage of the ABC audience who would not know how to turn on a Netflix, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I think the two things are probably still yeah. true. <laughs> They're just looking for a different version of, you yeah. know, that. Um, but it's why you see so many cooking shows and dancing shows and dating shows and these sort of things because they want to make something that is safe and boring and no one has the money or the creativity. Yeah. Um, it, what sort of show... Oh, thank you for asking. ...would you make? Oh, my God. Well, I've got it. I've got it ready. I've pitched it to so many networks. I want to make... An old school 1970s variety TV show. So like um, Graham Kennedy, Judy Garland, Graham Norton, Ellen, all combined, but I'm obviously always in a ball gown. And I want a band and I want a drag queen serving margaritas and I want guests to come on and I want them to give me a song from their childhood and that, w- that we'll perform it together with the band and then they'll tell stories. And, I'm, and I, then I want to do like live product placement stuff, you know, a little like improv with the product. Um, and I want to do it once a week and that's all I want in the world and that is what everything I've ever done has been centred toward doing. What time of night? Oh, yeah. What is it? Is, is this it's like cable. a prime time it's show gotta, it's or gotta is be, this like it's a bit of a late a, night operation? Yeah. Yeah, late night. Um, and I want it to be elaborate and camp and thoughtful and um, big and shiny. and Yeah, like you're throwing a party. Yeah, every week. And I, my favourite thing to do is interview um super talented people. I love finding out about creative process. I love finding commonality and um, I don't think there's a really good outlet for that in our in our country at the moment. So we're kind of squeezing them onto games and things, which is a bit weird. Um, so yeah, that's that's my goal. And I'm just going to, I'm, sh- I'm going to shoot that this year. I'm going to fucking do what I've done with stand-up and with radio and I'm going to make it myself and make it how I want it and find an audience and then sell it, which is what I've had to always do. I think you should. I mean, I think it would be... The sort of thing that, I mean, if a, if a TV network, like if one of the free-to-air TV networks wasn't brave enough to do it, mm. um, and by the way, I think they should be. What a great idea for a show. <laughs> I'd watch that show. That'd be great. Particularly, you know, on a, like a sort of show for someone who wants the feeling of going out on a Friday or Saturday yes. night, but is Mama. just actually going to sit at home in their pyjamas. Yes. <laughs> you know? oh, we're eating chips off their tits. Yeah. That's what I should call it. Stay right. home and eat chips off your tits. But feel like you're still going out yes. and doing things and having fun. And just soaking up my effort. Right. My energy. Because I put in, right. I try hard at everything. Yeah. Just suck it in. Feel yeah. a bit fabulous for an hour. Yeah, you've definitely got that, my dad's gone to a bar and let's put on a show. You know, 100%. I was the kid at the school assembly every week that would walk out with the boombox and stand there in position for half an hour while the, the sporting teams gave the bat tennis results. And then the music would just pump up the jam would come and I was fucking standing. And everyone would groan. Like, oh. Every week. That was me. But I'm also shy, introverted, don't leave my house, weird in social situations, can't look people in the eye. Uh, so, so there's two sides. It'd be great if... 
you know, like for example, a Stan, you know, which is like, you know, sort of an Australian, a Netflix competitor, yes. but has an Australian focus and what they're looking to do, obviously, you know, someone like that. And I'm just using them as an mm. example, obviously here, but I could just see them. If you want people to like get Stan as well as Netflix, yes, Wolf Creek will do it or, you know, whatever yeah. shows that you have, whatever. Yeah. But if you could say to people, oh, by the way, also there's this like, you know, once a week yeah. you'll see this thing. You know, we put a bit of budget into it. Yeah. We film it. You know, it's once a week. But the great thing about being on a Stan or whatever is it's also the sort of show that doesn't have to be nah. time specific. Catch up. Like if it's Tuesday morning yeah. and you've sent the kids off to school and you don't want to fucking sit, like watch some advertorial show where they're mm. flogging your vacuum cleaners, <laughs> you want to ha- like put on your pajamas and have a little boogie yes. in your living room. You know, you can put it on there and have your own little, yep. you know, you can have your Saturday night party on Tuesday morning at 10 if you want. Stay at home mums need to feel fabulous. It, well, too, that's or... what I mean. It makes that to me is where I think that that show would have would enormous value, yes. you know? Yes, I yes, I agree. I would I would really want to do it. That's what I really Print want to do. Print that Daily Mail, yeah. Print that, you cunt. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that on the Yeah, you it's a podcast. Language we can, I think we always put offensive I language. I normally say something offensive, so we have to I mean, I'm telling you my studio people. audience to fuck off. <laughs> that's so, amazing. I mean, <laughs> no, that's goals for me, right? There. <laughs> Imagine. I love that. Um, so uh, radio is interesting to me because you've done a lot of it and I'm just back in it. Mm. And, um, you know, the nature of that every day, being in a studio with the same people and, you know, kind of building those relationships is a... I mean, you're at the most vulnerable time of the day. Mm. So if you're caught between those ideas of, you know, being kind and not taking shit from people, like that's going to be most tested in those high-pressure, high-speed moving, uh, a million different voices. Mm. Um, Often, you know, you're being told one thing as another thing is happening at exactly the same time. Mm. How have you uh, handled that and how are you – are you handling it differently now than how you used to do that? Or is it, you know, what's what's your kind of vibe when, you know, in regard to working, you know, on the radio? My vibe. It's dark. (laughs) (laughs) I – I mean, I see you in the mornings. You don't seem like you're ever in a dark mood when I see you. I, That's because I'm happy can... to see you, though. Um, I struggle. I struggle again in a team environment. I always watch Hamish and Andy and, and how seamlessly they all they all gel together. Like they've obviously got you know they've got their vibe, but also you know they've picked their team. I often get put together with people that I would never pick to work with, just because of my personality type. Yeah, it's no, like yeah. Hamish and Andy seem to have fun. Yeah, because all their high school mates are all working exactly. to, uh, together, and they <laughs> pay them. Which I think radio yeah. would be a different ball game for me if I could just sell the show. So I pay all the staff, and I tried to fight them on this. When they signed me, I'm like, please let me produce the show and um, give me this much money, and I'll give you a finished product every day. But they wouldn't do it because they want some control in the show. But um. If I could hire a team to work with me, like this year, I, I sacked my management toward the end of last year and I'm managed, I've, I've got my own company and I've got a CEO and I've got an EA and they run me now, which is the best move I ever did. Um, and if I could just, I'm, I'm not, radio brings out the worst aspects of my personality, hence the rumours that go around about me within the industry. Um, and, and I'm hyper aware of that. Like I'm, and I'm tired as well. I'm not a morning person. I'm not, I'm, all my best ideas come at 2am. In the, like always late at night and I'm impatient. Have you thought about moving time zones? Oh, I God. mean, technically, if you were doing the show from New Zealand, LA would you'd work. be at peak. 
It's true. <laughs> New Zealand would work anywhere, anywhere but where I am. I have thought about that. I've in desperate. I get desperate. Um, I don't think I'm suited to breakfast radio, although everyone argues with me. Um, well, I was going to say, like, it's been a huge part of the radio time you've spent has been doing all of it breakfast radio all of it and you strike me like certainly as an on-air performer very breakfast radio i struggle so much with what it. do you struggle with again that containing containing myself to um not get too passionate or fired up about something not swear um not like roll my eyes at every single fucking thing that gets said because I just hate – I don't want to be a part of the numbing and dumbing of society. I think that's going on enough. And sometimes I struggle with the idea of some of the things we do is it's so frivolous and unnecessary and flippant. And then, I don't know, I, 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 want, I work really hard to do this job. I don't find it easy. Um, I think I'm probably hurtling toward some sort of implosion in the next six months. Um, you heard it here first. But, um, but if, so if – and look, I've felt at times in my life like that as well. You know, when things, you just go, I can't keep doing this Mm -hmm. the way this is doing. This is going to blow up into something Mm -hmm. big at some stage. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also had How do you prevent that from happening? Leaving, ejecting before. Like, Harley leaving was, uh, hit me really hard. Um, And then, like, Ed and Grant were, like, they they just got, they were put in the show. That was it. And and I got, all of a sudden got two co-hosts that I'd never really met or spoken to. And then I'm expected to have this instant chemistry with. And it was just hectic. And it was the M. Rossiano radio show. It was my show. And um, all of a sudden Ed's anchoring. The show's called the Today FM Breakfast Show. Like I took all these big ego hits. And um, we're killing it online. But then our ratings were shit, old ratings. But we were number one beating Kyle and Jack and Facebook and Instagram, everything. Because that's my audience. I've got half a million followers online. So they deemed me a failure and that, you know, we, we need to inject two people. Well, we have a um, – people don't know this and, look, it's not worth getting bogged down in it too much, but um, the way radio surveys are done is the most ridiculous thing of all time. Mm. Like, th- they're paying more attention. Like, at least your Facebook hits or your – like, I mean, I, have, I often say it about the television and I, I feel like I can say this because my television show has been yep. a successfully rating television yeah, show. This, this is not – yeah, like sometimes when <laughs> you're, you're talking about ratings, You're not me who's coming last, you know, behind the fishing station, guys. But, that, so but that's what I – I mean, like sometimes the only people who point out how ridiculous out how the system is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as someone who's benefited from the shitty system, <laughs> I can still say it's a shitty system. Yeah. But particularly in radio, you're filling in a book. Uh, it doesn't reflect how people actually listen to the radio, which is that they might flip from one thing to the other. They might catch up on podcast form. Mm. They might just watch a 10-minute yeah, grab of the show mm. online. But mm. that's no different to listening to the show because most people who are listening to the show and they're listening to 10, 10 or 20 minutes as well. Yeah. So but they're actually measurable views. Yeah. You can go, oh, I, I did this prank with Harley or yeah, yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. And it's been seen online by this many people. And you can actually measure that. Whereas like the the rating you get on your radio show is if someone remembered to fill in their book of what they listened to Every that Every six minutes for no money. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so, hard. But, everyone, but then the but argument let's not is bother talking. we all live and die by the same system. Yeah, we do. we do. But my point being that it's just... Yeah, and I'm like, I'm not a failure. Give, me, a, give me another right. year, guys. It's a dumb system yeah. regardless of whether you're winning it yeah. or whether you're losing yeah. it. And one day there'll be a different system. Yeah, and we're going up and, in the ratings and, now. But so. also, one day there'll be a different system. Right. And it might turn out that no one's watching Listening. <laughs> or, or, or watching. I know, that's the biggest yeah. fear. It's like, okay, I've complained enough. Oh, yeah. 10 people are listening to the radio. Yeah, it turns out there's less. <laughs> Shut up, Em. <laughs> we're the, paying you how much a year? <laughs> Fuck. 
Okay, I'm going to shut up now. The ratings are great. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. No, but so, okay. I struggle. I'm struggling. You I struggle live in a world day. where that's... So I live in that world. We both live in the world. But you seem to where, handle it fine. You work with Eddie Maguire. When, when we're being measured yeah. in that way mm. and there is a sport out there in society, mm. particularly around the show that you were involved in. Uh, people who've listened to this podcast know this, that I, before I talked to Jules Lund about it, that well, that episode isn't out yet. But at some stage there'll be an episode with yeah. Jules Lund where we've already talked about it. But when Kyle and Jack left, they offered me that job mm-hmm. and I decided not to take it because mm-hmm. – I was aware of how it was going to be and it has proved to be Mm -hmm. a real graveyard and a real Mm -hmm. like poison chalice and the more that becomes the story of that slot, Mm. the more every time a new person comes in to have a go at it, all people really want you to do is continue to fail fail and fail badly because that's a good story for them to keep writing. So it's not even like you're on some show where like, you know, A, you're getting judged by something that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. But B, you're getting complete, every time, complete media attention oh. about this thing. So how, what's that like to go through? How, how did you handle that? How, what was it like to suddenly realise, oh shit. Like, because up until that point, mm. you never would have had the same no, uh, was, level of... People like, wrote nice things. Right. I was like, people like me. Yeah. Um, I was, well, I don't know. I don't honestly have a Google alert on my name, so I don't read anything like i know imagine i mean all of us no i wouldn't get out of bed guys um it was weird like and also i was like i didn't have a co-host it was always oh rassiano sinking today fm or like it was always just me i'm like um i got another guy who's working here every day and then even this year it was so funny uh, like last book because we've had two big jumps and last book the headline was rassiano hits five-year high for today fm and like six months ago same publication rassiano sinking today fm i'm like oh guys and I only know those two articles because they came up in media monitors and yeah. they got shown to me. But um, oh, you know what? I can honestly tell you, I just don't give a fuck. I can't control it. What I can like the day the ratings came out and like we we I think it, we were stagnant was the day Kyle went on air and said that I was pathetic and that um she should be ashamed of her show and embarrassed to even be on air. And then I went on sale in Sydney that day. And Opera House went in twenty minutes. State Theatre went in fifteen minutes. And it was just like you know what, I don't feel pathetic. You know, I've just sold out my comment. Like, I'm okay and people are listening and obviously Sydney does like me. So I get this great instant feedback from the people who actually spend money on my shows and my books and, and the, my products. And until I start letting them Which down, again is a much more measurable exactly. thing. I must be doing okay, guys. I'm, I'm feeling the palais in Melbourne and I'm uh, until that dries up, until I start getting feedback, oh, you really half-assed that, or that was bullshit, or we, until the people I actually measure myself against, which are the people who consume my products, start hating it and shitting on it, then I'll get worried. But, like, the media in Sydney especially, again, bunch of cunts. Like, Daily Telegraph, get fucked, all of you. I don't care. Sydney Morning Herald, eat a, eat a bag of dicks. Print it. Um, <laughs> I don't think the Sydney Morning Herald would print dicks, would they? Well, maybe not. But I just, honestly... <laughs> Daily Mail prints something about me every day. Yeah, right. Like, honestly, there's someone who's on my social media and just lifts the picture and makes up a headline. And now I'm just dizzy. What's I, I don't – and people follow me know that, that it's made up and it's bullshit. So I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I can't control it. So also, let's be real, I do the show from Melbourne most of the time. So I am thankfully out of that market. Yeah, um, so, hey, have you got another 20 minutes? Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to have a pause because I can't make it through the whole show without a bathroom break because I'm 44 years old, Em. Yeah. 
We're back. Uh, I had my regular bathroom break. I can't make the whole podcast. That's okay. I always get to the point where I'm like, I've got at least 20 minutes more of things I want to talk to you, and I know that I can't make it to 20 minutes. I noticed you were glancing around nervously. I'm like, oh, God, he's bored. But you just needed to go to the toilet. I You're did. like a toddler. That's the signs you look for in a toddler. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to start wearing one. Like, remember that astronaut who put the like the adult nappies the adult on and nappies. drove across the country? Mm. I'm going to have to start doing that for the podcast. That's I think. good. Actually, I was talking about adult nappies before. Apparently, women who are mad keen for the royal wedding put on adult nappies so that they can keep their prime position for the um, the parade. I mean, this is probably something you can't say about the Queen, but at her age... You... Definitely. <laughs> she would definitely have a pair of tenor ladies on every day. Philip would wear them too, though, you know. Oh, yeah. When he's not being delightfully racist. Uh, so... Uh, I want to ask you about, uh, there's a couple of things you mentioned so far that I'd love to hear you talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people who believe that when a relationship ends, <laughs> that you should never go back to it, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, my situation is certainly not that situation. Uh, my partner and I have had a series of on and offs and, mm-hmm. and found our way back and, mm-hmm. you know, been to the moments where, you know, when you probably break up with someone, you get to the 
the worst of all things that each of you have thought and said about each other and have found a way back. And mm. I actually think that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. I personally, I think it's great that we've managed to share all these, you know, horrible things and still find a way to, you know, find your way back. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to me about like your journey with that? Yes. Well, we've been together 18 years, um, two separations, one for a year and one for six months. He moved out on the first one, went to live with his mum in the one bedroom apartment in Black Rock. Fun. Um, and then the second one, we decided to, we would definitely just live together and raise the children. That was an amazing decision. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we... We, I found out I was pregnant uh, four months into our relationship and I was 20 and he was my coach at the Institute of Sport. He was 27. And um, we've been living together in a one-bedroom apartment just off Gray Street in St Kilda for seven days. And I found out on Valentine's Day and um, our relationship from that moment on was just under pressure. Like we didn't get the go on holidays, get to know each other, decide if we even like each other. It was just we were tied together for life. No matter what. And so and in the hardest bit of it, like oh, in a thing that, you know, yeah. can test oh. the most, you know, stable and long-term of all relationships. Absolutely. Uh, tell me just quickly before we get to that, yeah. uh, because this is something that I don't hear you talk about a lot, uh, but I was aware of you, which was your earlier life as <laughs> an athlete. <laughs> yeah, I don't talk about it much. Why, why do you not talk about it? Um, why is that not part of your still story? I reckon if I had that background, it'd still be, you know, yeah. I'd still be ringing. I mean, I haven't been to, I haven't been back to the fucking dairy farm for about <laughs> three years and still gets a major mention every year in the show. I don't know. I, um, I've, I don't like the way it ended. I, I feel like I had a lot of unfinished business. I yeah. honestly was on track to be an Olympian. So, so I was in the top. Tell, yeah, I was well. a hundred hurdlers. Um, but also just started little athletics when I was six and, um, Broke on, on the day, my first day, I broke six records. So I was just this precocious, muscular, crazy, talented athlete, developed really young. Like I finished growing at 12 and, and I was just built like a brick shit house. And I was very fast and I made my first national team when I was nine. I competed against 14-year-old girls and won. And um, I just was always going to be an Olympian. I had all, I had Flojo, I had all my heroes, PBs posted on the wall and I was just so singularly focused um, and then it all kind of ended when I was 16 leading into world juniors. I was like in the top 10 hurdlers in the world for my age. Um, and I tore my hamstring really badly competing in an aerobics championship, which I was actually not supposed to be doing cause I got banned. Um, cause they're like, you've got world juniors coming up. Please don't do the aerobics. Yeah. But because I'm an overachieving little shit, hurt yourself. You hurt yourself. <laughs> so I doing a high kick tore my hamstring from the bone and that was the end of my career. Wow. Um, and so then I flipped and, into Bellagrams. Where, where you've been good from that young an age, mm. and it's been, I imagine, probably you're thinking, this is what I'm going to do. It's my with identity. My life, right? That was it. I made. I had no backups. I didn't give a shit about school. Like it didn't matter. I was going to no, be Olympian. You're going to be an Olympian. Get fucked. Yeah. Yeah, do whatever you want. I'm going to run. And I was known as a sporty girl. I'd never sung a note. I'd never performed. I'd mean, I performed at home. That was it. And. Um, I was just, everyone knew. I told everyone, like, I wore Olympic tracksuits. Like, I was, it was it. And then all of a sudden it was gone and I finished year 12 and I bombed year 12. Um, and then I had no athletics and I was just like, oh, my God, what do I do? And then I did, I went into velodrome cycling, which I was really good at, annoyingly. Um, and then I kind of met Scotty and got pregnant. <laughs> Yeah. Was that? that he was, was that. my strength and conditioning coach at the Institute of Sport. And do you ever like 
do you watch those events now? Like, do I you, can't. Could you celebrate Sally Pearson's success, no. or did you just look my whole at her body? And go, you bitch. My whole body. I'll watch her race. Scott has filmed it once. I'm watching and every hurdle. My whole body shakes with her. My daughter took up athletics and um, was very, very good. Uh, same event as me, but she quit it six months ago and broke my heart. Like, and I realized I was wholeheartedly living my dreams through my eldest daughter. Um, but. Yeah, I can't watch it. I, and I think I don't talk about it because there's still so much unfinished business for me. And then whenever I watch the Olympics or Com Games, I look for the oldest athlete doing whatever fucking sport and just think, okay, I could be there still. Don't worry. I could, if I decided to, if I could tomorrow take up archery, I could fucking do it. Don't they worry. still do lawn bowls at the Commonwealth Games. And I have not let go of that. Um, <laughs> Curling but, at the Winter Olympics. Yeah, you could probably... anything. Bobsled. Come yeah. on, guys. Um, I just lay. Um, it's a interesting when you mention your daughter doing athletics because um, you talk about, you know, those two aspects of your personality being, yeah, very separate. You know, one kind of came after the other, mm. as in like, or expressed, was expressed kind of mm. a bit after the other. But you would post some pictures of your daughter, you know, at athletics. And I was like, well, it feels like she's got both of them combined. Yeah. <laughs> like, felt like she was doing a show at yeah. most of the athletics meets yeah, from what I could much. see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. I don't know. I think being... So- having a, Sorry, so on that, I was just going to quickly, sorry, Do I didn't it. mean to interrupt. But I, um, when you have a kid who's, you know, off doing something that you wanted to do yourself. Yes. It but also, good. she and she's good. She's and, great, and she's but she's also got her own very unique personality oh, that's God. not necessarily like as a parent. Yeah, what's your like? How do you encourage her? How do you like? What do you do? Like, what do you do? I am. I have. A, I'm a hectic mother. Um, I didn't have a very good relationship with my mum growing up, but like we're we're better now. But it was very complicated, and um, so I was always determined to be an excellent mother. But the reason I'm so good at so many things is because I was just trying to get the approval of my baby boomer parents, who really couldn't give a fuck. Um, I mean, they were busy, they were working, they were. She was getting a degree. She was doing what the women of that generation did. They, right. you know. So I was often left. And in that devices. generation, it wasn't compulsory for parents to give a fuck. They didn't. I like, like honestly, we, I remember driving on my dad's lap to get smokes. Like I just, you know, West Coast coolers in the car, all the windows wound up. I just rem- have memories. Right. They just, they did their best. They're great. My dad's amazing. They're great parents. But I was always de- very determined to be a very present mother. And so, um, my daughter, as a result, is she's on an academic scholarship. She's super, super intelligent. I have dyslexia, so um, she. I always put it down. She's me without the brain problems. Um, so she's she's very smart. She's very reserved. She um, everything is measured in her. She's got long red hair. Um, she's beautiful. She's very muscular and built, but she's not competitive because she hasn't had to be because Mama Bear's always in there, just fucking. Um, and she also complained the other day, we were watching Apollo, you know, the boxing, the boxing movie, yeah. um, and Creed, I think it's, Creed. it's called Creed, it's called Creed with Michael B. Jordan. Mm. And she turned around and she said, you love me too much. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? You want me to drop yeah. you in Compton? You want to grow up with a gang? Is that what this is? I mean, she's probably right though. <laughs> if she's ever going to amount to something, you've got to love yeah, her a little she less. Said. That's like, cause because my parents, it was like kill or be killed. It was yeah. like, what? Do you, okay, what have you got to impress me with today? Whereas with my kids, I'm like, oh my God, you farted. That's amazing. I'm putting it on social media. That was such a good fart. I love it. I mean, I see kids. I see, you know, and look, even kids who I think are being well raised mm. and the way that they will go to their parents and go like, hey, you know, I want to do something. Like, mm. yeah, can I watch this? Can I do this? Mm. My parents were just, they're farmers. 
They would just like go, you're three. Work it out yourself Correct. for eight hours. <laughs> That's it. My mum would shut the door yeah. and we'd be locked out until the streetlights came on. Yeah. That was it. We were gone. Like, I think about the shit I used to get up to. But if I could microchip my children now, I would. Yeah. But no, I'm also very tough. So I'm like an Asian mother. I'm like a tiger Asian uh-huh. wog mum. So I'm also very like, no, that shit, do it again. So like I'm I, I have like that's that kind and don't take shit mentality of yeah. I'm soft until they need an, a boundary or something to bounce off. Um but honestly with Marcella being so fucking talented, I it feels so good. I don't feel any jealousy, which initially I think I thought I would. But I get so much joy out of watching her be good at shit. I mean, you don't want to be the parent of the shit kid, let's be honest. Um so <laughs> But you also don't want to be the shit parent, right? Correct. I should have said that first. Um, <laughs> no, but no. My, but, be honest, but I'm just saying you're, yeah. you're so don't want to be. You don't want to be a shit parent. But my other daughter <laughs> is like this crazy drag queen loving. She's 11 and she's just, she's like, she's mental in all the best ways and doesn't really like much sport. Does a bit more. She's a circus. Yeah. She's a circus in Collingwood. You know, she's that kid. Yeah. And so I've really got my two personalities in kids. Like their dad is somewhere in there, but there's just my two sides of my personality with both my children. But so, okay. So you get pregnant pretty young. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you're thrown oh, My in. parents were wrapped. Y- yes. Yeah. <laughs> my Italian Catholic father was just so proud. <laughs> it was really bad. He didn't speak to me. Like he, he really had to process it. It was right. I didn't see my, my grandparents found out I'd had a child on Idol. So that was fun. Um, she was two. Um, yeah, it was just not something that was talked right. about. But yeah, I found out I was pregnant really young and really, <laughs> really put a spanner in the works. Yeah. So mm. what happens? Suddenly you're a really mm. young mum. Mm. You're in this, you know, new, pretty new relationship. Very. So what's going on in your world? Like, how do you find yourself, you know, I mean, what happens before you get to Idol? What were you doing before Idol? Nothing. Uh, Scott was working at Carlton Football Club, so he does strength and conditioning um, in the AFL. Not anymore, but he did for a long time. And he was working at Carlton and I was just at home with the baby. Um, I was doing a little bit of interior design because that's my kind of passion. That's what I studied at uni. And um, then all of a sudden he gets a job at Port Adelaide Power. And so we moved to Adelaide and he was working at the Power. And um, I went back to uni to get my degree in interior design. And then I was honestly just a stay-at-home mother studying part-time. That was all I was doing. And then the Idol auditions rolled around and I just did it. Why? Exactly. Why? <laughs> I don't know. No, but I, but I mean, because I've made from what you've described to me. I'm not a singer. I mean, I am. Yeah. And I love it. You can sing. I can. But it's my not dad like you was were in a band. A, like my a dad singer. Was, yeah, but my dad is an amazing muso. Right. Played in a band. My whole life I've always been at gigs. He's a lead singer, guitarist, played with Sammy Davis Jr., Joe Cocker. Like he, an incredible career. Um, and so I was always around musicians, but I was the sport girl. He was the music guy. And my dad never told me, not, not demonstrative in any way, never told me I was a good singer, so I assumed I was shit. So um, I don't know. Honestly, there was a karaoke night at Alberton. We were there with all the wags. Stephanie Wanganine heard me sing. Then the Idol auditions, it was so serendipitous. The Idol auditions popped up on the telly at the bar and they were like, you should do that. And it was literally the next morning. I was so hungover and I rolled over to Scotty and it was like 10 o'clock in the morning and I assumed I'd missed them. Like, should I go? And he said, yeah, go. So I jumped in my car. I drove there. I was the last person they saw for the day and um, I just kept getting through. It was crazy. I'd never sung in front of anyone. I was petrified. Um, 
And I mean, then, that's crazy. If that's you've crazy. Never, if you've never sung crazy. in front of anybody and then suddenly week by week... You I mean, I did, I did karaoke. That was, yeah. that was fun. Was yeah, but not while. performing. Nah, not performing. You just... Everyone's drunk and you, you know, you know what karaoke is like. Oh, I was terrified, but I've spent my life doing shit I have no business doing. I put on a fucking stand-up show. Had I ever done stand-up? No. I did radio. I'd never been in a broadcasting studio. And all of a sudden I took a breakfast radio job in Perth. Like I've... I've made a habit out of just giving things a crack and seeing what happens. Where does that come from? Like, what's, what is that? Because I can imagine enough. Is it confidence? It's confidence. Yeah, right. You're just like, I reckon I could do this. 100%. Because you know why? I always have been able to do things. Because my first experience in life was being a gun athlete. So that just, it didn't matter. I was shit at maths. I wish I could, dyslexia, dyslexia didn't get diagnosed until I was like 17. So all through school, it was always, she's super smart, but doesn't apply herself. Yeah. You know, so... I don't know. I was always at the stuff I cared about. I was really good at. So I just assumed, why well, wouldn't I be good at this? As long as I cared about it, I'll be good at exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, if I wasn't good at something, I didn't care about it. We got yeah. dropped very quickly. Yeah. Well, vice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one is connected to the other. 100%. Yeah. I don't know. I always just, I was back myself. I've always backed myself. And also, I think I get off on fear. If something scares me, it makes me, pulls me into the present. And I'm like, this is right. Normally the thing that, um, you know, gets in the way of people is there's so many talented people out there who uh, let the fear stop them from trying the thing that they would like to do. Mm. But you f- seem to be describing the opposite. the opposite of that. Mm. I don't have that mechanism in my brain. I don't get fear. I only The only thing I fear is something happening to my family. I think that's my only real fear in life. Everything else, I'm just like, come at me, bro. Let's let's see what happens. I mean, fearless is a word that I would use to describe you. So it doesn't actually surprise me now that I think about it yeah. to to hear that. Okay, so we were talking about I your was relationship. Say my relationship. So we've been together. Oh, we moved to Adelaide. I did Idol. Then we moved to Perth. I did radio. Then my boss called me a cunt in front of everyone, so I quit. And then I moved back to Melbourne. And um, so got... I, 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 we don't need to linger on this moment if you don't want to, but. Your boss called you a cunt, <laughs> a cunt in front of everybody. Yeah, you know him too. You know who it is. Uh, well, let's for the sake of the Daily Mail not getting another headline, we'll talk about that off air. But when something like that happens oh, mate, to I, you, I lost my mind. Tell me what that is like. I it was all over Twitter too, of course, over a Twitter password. Um, I wouldn't give. I'd taken on the show social media, and this was like the first month of Twitter. And mm. I really love social media. I love how immediate it is. I can do little soundbites. And I built up our following to like 3,000 people, which was huge for a radio show. We yep. just, and we'd not delivered an on-air credit correctly and he wanted me to put a credit in the Twitter feed. And I said, no, I'm not spamming our followers. That's not what this feed's about. And he's like, give me the password. And I said, no, I'm not giving me the password. And he said, stop being a cunt. And I just looked at him and I said, what? And he said, you being a cunt and we're all sick of you. And I just said, oh, okay. So then I walked up to the general manager's office and I said, I'm done. Because that was four, nearly five years combination of – that job destroyed me. I actually, in a ratings break, was in a mental health institution. I was admitted into the private mental health place in West Perth uh, in a ratings break. Um, I had a co-host who was – I mean, there's no – Whipper and I did not get along on, in any um, – and that – I got postnatal depression. I was back on air four weeks after a cesarean because they were just calling. They were just relentless about me coming back. And I said, you don't get to say that to me after all that I've given this station. I've given you my life. I've literally bled for you. I talked about depression on air. I've... So I just, we literally packed up, sold the house, took the girls out of school, 
um, sold the cars and moved back in with my parents. Like it was hectic. And I went from being on buses and billboards to lining up at Centrelink. And it was just unbelievable time. And Scotty and our, and our relationship, it was hard. And then we, we moved finally out of my parents' house um, and we moved into a, into a little place in Northgate in Melbourne. And then um, our relationship just started falling apart. It was really bad. And finally, after 12 years of just clawing at each other we we were so scared to be away from each other because that's all I'd really known and we'd been through so much two kids jobs relocations we were we, we were so scared to be apart that we were prepared to be miserable together and then it just one day I just said to him I need you to go so he he actually went and I was like how dare you and he went and um we were apart for a year and it was horrible I felt like I'd chosen to chop my arm off and then I had no money and so I had to move in with mum and dad. And um, then we, um, we, after kind of like 11 months, I said, do you want to go to counselling? Because it was, we weren't being very nice to each other and we wanted to be better for the girls. And then within the counselling, we kind of came back to each other and moved back in together. And then after a year, that fell apart again because we didn't fix things. We just were so relieved to be back together. So then um, we fell apart again. It usually happens around the time I tour because um, he feels like I just withdraw to focus everything on my performing. It can be very hard for your partner in a situation mm. where you're giving so much of yourself yeah. to other people. Yeah. Um, you know, even just the nature of me doing this podcast is like we've been doing a lot of them, uh, you know, while Amy hasn't moved down yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I do that now too. You yeah. squeeze shit in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. because you like, to. you know, it's hard to justify to mm. someone why you're not in a mood to talk to them when you've been off talking to thousands of strangers and those sort of things. And so that can be extremely tough and yeah. extremely challenging. And particularly if you have children and a life and all those sort of things as well. So, um, how how are you now? We are the best we've ever been. So 18 years and I can tell you, I mean, touch wood, sorry. I'll probably think this. You'll probably hear we're fucking divorced next week on Daily Mail. Um, I, tr- I, I trust you for a comeback regardless. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you've made it through all this. Bad times are down. Yes, exactly. I, he is the love of my life and also, and he pointed this out to me, the most loyal person. He's just stuck with me through my worst and my best and he just keeps turning up and um, he's a great guy. Everyone loves Scotty. We have finally got to a point where we're able to accept each other for who we are and also accept each other's best. So often there would be, dis- you know, I'd be like, can you just clean the house? And I'd get home and he would clean the house to his standard, but I would be like, this is fucked. Right. He'd be like, well, do you want me to? So just little things yeah. like that. And so in return, he feels like, oh, well, I tried my best and it, yeah. now it's getting thrown in Yeah, he feels ripped right? He's like, nothing's ever enough. There's yeah. never enough I love yous. There's never enough. Like It was always me saying, he's, and then he's like, I'm not your fans. I'm not going to love you like your fans do. Stop expecting me to fill that void. Um... So he's, we're just, we're strong. And what brought us together, ironically, was the death of our baby. Like he was just rock of Gibraltar for me. I was, I've never, I'm a pretty controlled person and I, I lost all control. I lost, I couldn't get out of bed for a week. I was just, I was a bad mother. I was bad everything. And he was there. He filled the space. He stepped in and um, that we've, since that moment, we've barely had a fight. That was that was nearly a year ago. It's a year ago in a couple of weeks. Um, he, he, he did his, he was amazing. And so I think something like that either breaks a relationship or makes a relationship and it made us. And 
um, yeah, we've 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 not had a problem since. It's very. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I guess if 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 I'm being honest about my worldview, I don't really believe in this sort of thing. But it's hard not to hear that story and think that, you know, the 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 life of your lost child has been honoured a bit in the way that it's you know yeah it, you know given you guys that you know and I think that's a really nice yeah. thing and must give you some you know some at least a small yeah. amount of comfort. Well, that, that's um, that's how I ended the stand up show, just saying you know I, I I don't think there's an answer to why I had this loss, but what I could say is that it's showed me how strong my family is and and because of Ray, you know my relationship's never been better. So it's you're right. Uh, so tell me then. Uh, there's just a couple of standard things that I always like to ask at the end. Do you yep. have a belief about this world that is bigger than, you know, that we're a happy accident in the corner of the universe? And do you have a higher belief, for, you know, um, uh, you know, a belief in... Well, anyway, just talk, yeah. to me, talk to me about what it is that you believe. I'm really attracted to spiritual people and people of great faith. Like I often find out after the time, fact I became friends with someone that they're huge God botherers. And half my band pray and go to church and the guys who make my music are both massive planet shakers. Like I'm drawn to people. I love everything about religion except the God stuff. Yeah. So that's where I sit in things. I'm also like Italian Catholic latent throwback. So there's a lot of, I'm just going to hedge my bets. So I'll never actually say out loud I don't believe mm-hmm. in you know who. But um, I have a lot of problem. I remember I went to Catholic school and I had to get I had to be taken out of Catholic school because I had a real issue with the things that the nuns were teaching us and I would fight with them about the way women were portrayed as a five-year-old. I was fighting with nuns about women in the Bible. And um, yeah, I, I believe, I think there's something bigger than us. I, I, I lost my grandmother who was my best friend and, and I she's who I pray to. I pray to Denise. She's, she's my God. Um, and I think she's somewhere, she's represented to me in dragonflies. Dragonflies always appear in the most odd places when I've just spoken to her. Um, I don't know. I, I, I believe there's something bigger than us, but I don't know. Was, my husband says that I will end up being a devout Christian because I'm very much drawn to, to the idea of, of faith and, and believing in something bigger than yourself. Uh, was that... So- so the, the the question I always ask at the end is about death, and considering what we've talked about, you know, today, it, it feels like uh, it's 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 maybe even a tougher question than usual to ask somebody. But do you, obviously you have thought a lot about death all the time, you know? But were you were you a I guess external to? Well, no, just tell me about how you think about death. I'm not even going to try to put a proviso or a condition on it. Just what what do you think about when you think about death? I've been aware of my own mortality since I can since I was three. I've always thought about death to the point where I've I think I've tried to control live my life to control my legacy, which is the ultimate control freak situation. Mm-hmm. Like trying to control how I'm remembered. I don't want my girls to look back and say, "Oh, my mum didn't love me." Even though I'm not here to hear it. I'm like, I want to be fucking. Rem- I want the best memory. Um, I think about death. I'm I'm. I don't. I I, I want to go first before everyone else. I I know that much, but I don't know. I think I think I think people's juice stays around you in in whatever way that manifests in in maybe in your the shape of your eyes or your laugh or um, I think the people you care about who have impacted on you, especially the ones you're related to. I know that every time my girls look in the mirror, they'll see they both look like me, and I'll be there. And why doesn't that mean that I'm still alive and I'm not there with them in that moment? So, yeah, I don't think death is final. I don't think that's it. 
I think that in some way I've infused myself in their DNA or in their in in their the way they laugh or, or whatever they do. I think that I'll always be around that way. So I don't think you can ever say death is final if you've managed to pass some of yourself on to someone else. And what would you like people to? <laughs> But I'm not a bitch. I don't want to go and have everyone go, oh, she's such a bitch. Ding dong. God, exactly. Exactly. Ding dong, the witch is dead. That's probably what's going to play. I don't know. And, I, and I'm really aware of that now that I have to, um, I don't know. I think people who really know me well and take the, the time to know me generally love me. <laughs> but um, I'm also not very good at letting people in. So I tend to put on this hard-ass bitch front and – just very aloof or don't make eye contact or like there's a lot of contradictions in me. I want to be remembered as someone who just tried her best and was funny and um, made, and as someone who left an imprint, you know, I, I really do. So I'm working on that. I really want to move into doing more for other people. I always feel better when I'm out of my own fucking shit and, helping someone else. So that's when I'm at my best is when I'm helping other people through stand-up or through volunteering or whatever. So I, I just don't want people to think badly of me, I think. And I think a lot of people do, which kills me. But A lot of people think badly about everyone though, Em. If we're being completely honest about it. Do you think? I always say, oh, absolutely. Absolutely, I don't know. I just that's feel like I walk like into a room you, of our peers you think and I think of, they avoid me. If you think of anyone, even the person you think is most loved, like I bet if we went to my computer right now and Googled, I hate Hugh Jackman, <laughs> there would be like like hundreds of entries from people going Probably. that they can't stand him for some reason. <laughs> I can't imagine that. He's so I don't lovely. know. Well, I mean, maybe I'll pick the one example, <laughs> but there wouldn't be. But... There is nothing negative. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like it's, the, yeah. I think that there is a lot of hate out there. And I think that sometimes it's very easy for us to, to concentrate on it. And look, you know, I mean, you know, I've been as guilty of it as anybody. And, and I think that it's very, an easy, fun thing for human beings to do is to, mm. you know, uh, say that somebody else is something so that you don't have to mm. check yourself exactly. and, you know, recognise that perhaps, you know, you you do many of the things that you are projecting on that person as yeah. being, you know, their weaknesses. Yeah. Um, I have loved this. I think this has been just really great fun and I, this has been an absolute pleasure to have you here and thank you, Sue, for being so generous and so open and all those sort of things. Um, uh, plugs. I'll do some up the top as well, okay. but what do you want to plug? I've only really... Got, well, my audio book got nominated for audio book of the year. So Your you audio book is called? Try Hard, Tales from the Life of a Needy Overachiever. You can also get the hardback. Um, but I'm doing Adelaide Cabaret Festival um, one night only with Chong Lim and John Farnham's band because Farnham, that's as close as I'm getting. I'm obsessed with him. We didn't even go to my John Farnham obsession. Um, it's called Difficult Woman and it's going to be incredible. 15 songs, 15-piece band, huge brass section. So, yeah, but if you're in Adelaide, it's going to be amazing. So please come to that. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me.